0: Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f- What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.
1: Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. This is going to be a brief introduction because I'm pretty busy right now and I just want to get a podcast out before the end of the week. I have a few podcasts in the can. This is one of them. This is an interview with Neil Fletcher, my friend and former crewmate from this summer sailing adventure. And he's got some big news to talk about. So before we get on to that, let me give you my quick advertisement. If you are studying for the ASA 101, the basic keelboat certification, or the ASA 103, or the 104, the 104 is the one that lets you go out and charter a boat on your own, I have a series of audio lessons available for you at the website. Also, they're available in Amazon and on CD Baby and iTunes. So if it's something that's of interest to you, I have some very good reviews out there check it out. Uh, I think the cost of the lessons are twenty nine ninety nine, and most of them are about eight or nine hours in length for the full series of lessons. Also, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. If you like this podcast, will you go into the iTunes directory and give it a five-star rating? Possibly write a, a short note. It encourages me. I've had a few emails from people suggesting that I might interview some people. I got one from Deke. Deke is the guy that sent me the link to earthnullschool.net and then also the windyty.com, which is also included at the website. I have a uh, embedded weather picture on the website now. Deke suggested that I talk to an individual by the name of Ben Zartman, who has a website and went sailing with his family. He's from St. John's, Newfoundland. So he took his wife and three daughters and and went sailing and put together a website. He went sailing on a 31-foot Cape George cutter, which is somewhat similar to my Bristol Channel cutter. And he did all his own gaff rigging. So I reached out to Ben, and I actually called him. And I said, would you consider uh, joining me on the podcast? And he said, no, we quit sailing about a year ago. Not really interested in it. So I was disappointed in that. Then I got another email today from another listener giving me another suggestion for a topic. So I'm going to be following up on that suggestion as well. So if you have other suggestions for future podcasts, future topics you'd like to have covered, drop me a quick note. I appreciate that. If you just have any general comments, feel free to write me, at medsailor.com or use the contact form at the website. All right, enough of an introduction. Let's get on to my discussion with Neil Fletcher and the big news. So I'm talking with Neil Fletcher. Neil's a friend of mine. I consider Neil a friend now that we've sailed together for a couple weeks. And I reached out to Neil a couple weeks ago, said, Neil, we need to catch up on what's been going on with you and your recollections and new thoughts since you've gotten back from sailing with me. And you said, well, let me wait for a couple weeks because I've got some big news to report. So Give me the big news. Well, the,
0: the big news is that I am now the proud owner of a 1966 Allied SeaBreeze by the name of Arcturus, which is, uh, she's currently on the hard in Sweden. And um, if, if uh, some of your listeners are also familiar with the 59 North podcast, Andy Shell's podcast, they will recognize that name because that was Andy Shell's boat until two weeks ago.
1: And now it's mine. Well, tell us about the negotiations that led up to your purchasing his boat.
0: Well, you know, the negotiations between he and I were actually fairly straightforward. Because by the time that I'd got, that I'd made the decision to buy the boat... I'd already decided that the price that he was asking was a very reasonable price. Um, you know, hard. I'm not really a particularly hard negotiator. I, I just tend to offer what I think is a fair price based on whatever knowledge I have. And um, I think with Andy, he was keen to sell the boat, um, so he wasn't really interested in having a protracted negotiation either um i mean really when you get to the finish line france it's the finish line is only easily crossed if you've done due diligence beforehand and that's certainly what i had done because i've been looking dreaming <laughs> fantasizing and daydreaming about boats and the boat i was going to buy that was going to be my, my 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 real boat so to speak i'd been thinking about that for three years so when i finally came to make a deal with andy it was incredibly simple and fast
1: all right. Tell me about this boat and what what about it appeals to you? Then.
0: Okay, so this boat is what a lot of people would consider classic plastic. Um, it was built in 1966 by the Allied Company, who have a reputation as builders of fine, strong, seaworthy boats. Um, they the company existed in upstate New York in the 60s and 70s, and uh, which I guess is considered the golden era for um, cru- affordable cruising boats. Um, <clears throat> and then they finally went out of business, I believe, in the early 1980s. But I had been, as I said, reading um, about boats for the last couple of years. I'd, two boats in particular that really caught my eye were 20 Small Sailboats to Take You Anywhere by John Vigor and a sort of a sequel of, of sorts called 24 affordable sailboats to take you anywhere. And I think read these, these books, I saw certain, there were certain fundamentals of good boat design that made boats, um, you know, seaworthy and reliable and that had stood the test of time. And I kept coming across certain um, facets of boats. And one thing that I noticed was that the allied boat company repeatedly came up, um, you know, the boats, are made with thick fiberglass. Um, that, of course, was the benefit of the, the economic situation in the world before the Arab oil, the OPEC oil crisis in 1973. The boats from that time, very thick fiberglass, made to last, made to cross oceans. Um, and so in terms of the, the provenance of the boats in general, that's really what appealed to me you know, as a mark, so to speak. But what really appealed to me in this boat in particular was not just its provenance as coming from a highly reputable boat builder and just FYI, it was an allied boat that is credited as being the first, um, fiberglass boat to do a circumnavigation back in 1964, just FYI. But what really a- appealed to me specifically about this boat was its more recent provenance because it had been owned by Andy Shell, who's, uh, who's, podcasts I've been listening to for the last couple of years. And he's gone into great detail in all of the work that he'd done to replace and restore, uh, replace the problem issues and restore all what needed restoring. Um, And of course, before it was owned by him, it was owned by a gentleman called Ben Weems of Weems and Plath, who may be pretty familiar to people who know that they they produce high-end marine compasses. They're very well known in East Coast um, sailboat circles. So by the time I looked at the provenance of the boat, you know, the, its bones, let me put it that way, and its recent history, which I'm happy to go into, all of the things that Andy has replaced on the boat um, and Ben had rep- before him had replaced. I mean, the, the deck was completely replaced. Um, they uh, made sure that there was no compression around the mast. The... Um, all the typical areas of failure of a boat this age um, have been have been replaced. So it has um, titanium shrouds from Caligo Marine. Uh, it has new haine bronze turnbuckles. Um, it even has, uh, what, to all intents and purposes, a new diesel engine. The, the engine only has seventy-five hours, or seventy-five hours, yes, and that's not a misprint. It's seventy-five hours. So, when you, the rig has been completely replaced. The rigging uh, is all um, Dyneema duct, synthetic rigging that was done by Andy over the last couple of years. So, when you look at all the potential points of failure of a forty-year-old boat. Um, they essentially have all been addressed in the last 10 years. So that gave me huge confidence um, to buy one from someone who I'd, I've never met, although really I feel I know him. Um, and two, it, you know, it gives me confidence going forward that I will not have to do any major maintenance to her, uh, at least probably for the next 7 to 10 years. And that's really enormous when you're buying a boat
1: unseen, which, which is what I'm doing. So let me ask you about the the deck. Uh, the, well, I should say the mast. Is it a deck step mast or a keel step mast?
0: It's a uh, it's a deck step mast. Okay,
1: and you said the rigging's been done. The standing rigging. What is the standing rigging? Is that the synthetic that we talked about with Brian Toss, or is that the titanium you said?
0: No, the the um, the shrouds are not. I beg your pardon. <laughs> the chain plates. <laughs> the I chain mean, plates. It's, it's a Monday. Forgive me. The chain plates, which are mounted outside on the keel, those are titanium, and they were replaced by Andy yeah, together with, I think they're manufactured by Caligo Marine. Now, Caligo Marine also make the synthetic rigging, the Dyneema ducts rigging. right. So that is what Brian Toss was talking about in the last couple of podcasts with you. And I had also heard the president of that company interviewed on the 59 North podcast, John Fran- Franzer, I believe his name is. And he was talking about uh, he was a, he had a, a boat, I believe, down in the Sea of Cortez. And he struck up a conversation one day with a fellow down there who was a, um, a, 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 a fisherman from the Bering Sea. Um, and I guess those were the fellows who first started using this to replace wire because of the weight advantages, the strength to weight advantages. And over the course of that hour-long interview with Andy Shell, it, it gave a really interesting insight into the benefit of this new type of rigging. I mean, it's still only being adopted. I consider myself to be something of an early adopter. But, it, you know, someone who really doesn't know very much about rigging, what, it actually makes perfect sense in terms of if you can have something that is, I think, eight times as strong, um, but only one fifth of the weight. I forget the exact, uh, the exact uh, proportions there, but it makes perfect sense to have something that can take, uh, that can take weight off the top of the rig. And um, if it's good enough for these gentlemen who are, you know, clearly expert sailors with, you know, thousands and thousands of of, of, of hours behind them. And then it made perfect sense for me, too. And as I said, it's all done. It's, and when I when I uh, it's de-rigged now, of course, because the boat is on the hard in Sweden. But as part of the sail agreement with Andy, he's going to meet me in Sweden when we launch the boat and we're going to re-rig it together. So that's going to give me an invaluable insight for the future in uh, exactly uh, – it's going to give me a crash course in rigging,
1: which uh, I think I probably need. So so the mast is down when it's in the dry dock then?
0: Yes, that's correct. Okay.
1: So I actually went on the uh, YouTube and looked for splicing videos on Dyneema. And it looks like it's a pretty easy splice to learn. It'll take some time to learn it, but it looks like something to, uh, to look into. After I talked to Brian, I thought, wow. That's something I could go over and do myself. But I think I'd make some practice splices and test them before I'd trust my own splices on something like that. So that's exciting that you're going to be having that type of rigging on your boat. So you'll be a, a good person to feel out as, as far as your thoughts on it after you've been sailing on it for a year or so.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, it's, um, you, you know, it, the, the, the interesting point to me about how, you know, where you get to the these decisions is, You know, you'll excuse me for using a Hollywood term here, Franz, but I am approaching what I consider to be the third act of my life. You know, my my kids in a couple of years, uh, they're both teenagers and they're going to be going off to to college pretty soon. And I, I simply put, I wanted to have a big third act. I just didn't want to fade away, which is, you know, what a lot of people do once they raise their kids and they start to look to retirement. And I think that the the thought of having a boat that I can go as you do perhaps for six or eight weeks a year is great or doing something, having, you know, being more ambitious and maybe thinking in terms of three months or six months at a time. Those things are uh, are exciting and scary um, and of course, it, they, it raises the prospect of stretching yourself rather than, as I said, just letting yourself die away. But having said that, you have to be rational, and if you can buy a boat which has these kind of, um, this kind of maintenance and this kind of restoration, where you don't have to worry about the rigging for eight or ten years or fifteen years. Then why not? I mean, there's, pl- there's going to be plenty of other systems that I'm going to have to learn and become familiar with, um, from the uh, from the electrical system to uh, to servicing the diesel. So if I can not have to worry about the rig for a while, for a few years, then that uh, that I consider to be a, a you know that's a bonus in the purchase, as far as I'm concerned.
1: So is it a, a full keel, a modified keel, a fin keel? What's the profile of the boat? It's well. This is again. This is. <laughs> This is
0: one of the many reasons that I wanted to buy this boat, and it really the the list became so endless of of the benefits of this boat that it made it, as I I hinted at earlier, it made it such an easy choice for me. The boat is actually a shoal draft with a lifting keel. Um, So it has a 380 or 400-pound bronze centerboard that uh, that has been re-engineered. I think uh, Andy did something with the sheaves and with the worm gear um, to make a slightly better system, but it works flawlessly. And, of course, you use that when you're um, going to weather and when you're crossing an ocean. Um, but the advantage of that, of course, in you know inland seas or canals or, or, or you know in more benign conditions is you can just pull it up and you can go what Americans call gunk holing, Um, And for me, that was a huge draw because I'm very, very interested in going to um, the French canals, as I think you know. I listened, you know, raptly to the the gentleman who was on your show about a year ago. And you'll remember we talked about the the possibility of going to the French canals when I sail with you in the summer. So um, this is wonderful because where she's located in Sweden, there is a a canal called the Gotha Canal that basically goes from east to west across Sweden. So that would allow me to the, – the, the lifting keel would allow me to take her through, the, uh, through that canal and out to the west coast of Sweden and then up to Norway to the fjords if I wanted to. Um, and it would also allow me to take her through the French canals in a year or two whenever I'd exhausted the possibilities of sailing in the Baltic, which is, as I said, where she is now. And I can take her through either Calais or La Havre or one of those northern French uh, English Canal, uh, English Channel Ports and I can just take her take my time going through lock after lock through the provincial French countryside and take her all the way to um, to the south of France so that's really again that's one of the the, um, the the huge selling points of the boat was the lifting keel
1: I like that idea now how does your wife feel
0: about this? Oh she's thrilled uh, well let me put it this way she tells me she's thrilled uh, and I, that's good enough for me <laughs> um, Seriously, my my wife loves to travel, but she is not quite as adventurous as I am. But we have made a point of traveling extensively with our children since they were born. And we've been to France half a dozen times. And I even have a sister who lives down there. Um, She lives in Bordeaux. So she's, she's thrilled at the idea in general of living on a boat for 6 to 8 weeks every summer and she's especially excited at the prospects of going to France because she likes French culture she likes French food and French wine and if going along the you know the gentle take the gentle demands of the English of the of the French countryside i think she's not ready to cross an ocean yet and neither am i but the, so the notion of getting used to being on a boat in a in a in a canal, whether it's in Sweden or whether it's in France, is hugely exciting to her. Um, and so, if the first sort of if the first thing that we have to do that is um, is 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 out in the water is probably in the Med, and we've already been on the boat for a couple of summers, I think that will help to
1: ease her into ease her through the transition. So, tell me what your plans are for next summer, and when I get to join you.
0: Well, you, of course, are first on my list. Um, Right now, I'm going through the fun part, um, which is um, I'm looking at the maps, I'm looking at Google Earth, I'm looking at cruising guides, and really, I'm spoilt for choice. I mean, in and around... Stockholm, which is about sixty miles from the marina where the boat is currently on the hard, um, if you just go out a little further east and go go out into the Baltic, there's an archipelago there with, I believe, thirty thousand islands. It's an unbelievable amount of islands, and and sailing is such an ingrained part of sort of Swedish middle class culture there that there are all sorts of um, amenities. You know, there's everything from big marinas to tiny little uninhabited islands. And some of the islands there even have your own do-it-yourself saunas. So you go in, you chop some wood, you get in the sauna, and then when you need to cool off, you jump into the Baltic. (laughs) Um, So that side of things really appeals to me, and I have no idea how long I'm going to take. What I know is I'm not going to rush, Franz. I'm just going to take my sweet time. And then if I want to start looking at um, overnight passages, I could take uh, an overnight passage to Gotland, um, which looks very interesting. I saw something on the Paul and Cheryl Shard's TV show about the island of Gotland. That looks like a nice place to go. And that is equidistant between the Swedish East Coast and the little um, countries of Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. Um, And then once you're going that far afield, if you've got time, you can take another couple of day sails and end up in um, St. Petersburg in Russia. Or you can head north for a few more day sails and end up in Helsinki in Finland. I mean, it is a really rich and varied and exciting cruising ground. And I think because of the fact that it's considered to be cold compared to the Mediterranean, I think it's a bit overlooked. So I'm going to spend as much time really as I'm comfortable um, there. And if I want to keep the... And I will definitely keep the boat there uh, over winter for the following season because it's also very cheap compared to a lot of the rest of Europe. It's only about $1,200 a year on the
1: hard in Sweden. That's a bargain. And you're buying the boat VAT paid, correct?
0: That's exactly right.
1: So That's
0: that's number 15 on my list. I mean, to say that the boat really ticked all the boxes is is just an understatement. Um, I mean, it's really... It's just astonishing. As I said, it's, um, it, yes, it's VAT paid, so there's no extras there. It's cheap to keep in Sweden, um, which is – and as I said, it's, it, it's, it's a beautifully restored boat by someone who really knew what they were doing. So it's really it, – it ticks every box you can possibly imagine. And, um, and as I said, once you've, once you've exhausted everything or at least seen everything you want to see in the Baltic Sea, you can always head w- uh, west – and then go up the west coast of Norway and go into those um, those fjords, which are absolutely magnificent as well. So uh, it's, there's definitely one summer ahead of me in that part of the world, and probably two. I think in all likelihood I'm going to have two summers there, and I wouldn't think about putting her through the French canals until probably 2018. That's my guess.
1: Wow. You've got lots of territory to explore, don't you? Yeah, it's, it's
0: absolutely thrilling, you know, to be honest with you. And it's... Um, it's 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 nice to get to this to the, to this to this sort of point i mean you know if i could if I could just spend a a, a minute or two just talking about how I got here, I think it's kind of an interesting um journey of the mental journey I made and I think perhaps the the podcast listeners would would find it interesting you know i i had i had um as i said been reading a lot of books um been going visiting a lot of websites and i you know I had narrowed down what I thought I wanted in a boat. and it, it, Well, actually, I knew what I wanted in a boat I, and things I just discussed a few, few minutes ago. And I, as far as getting it down to a short list of boats, I was thinking about something like a Hans Christian 38 or a Tiana 37. I also liked the Camper Nicholson 35. Um, but I had no way of figuring out how I could get from A to B in terms of the practicality of it, you know, where I live in Southern California, it's a long way from the Mediterranean, as you know. Um, And I was thinking to myself, well, even if I'm able to find a boat, where am I going to find it? The most logical place to go is somewhere where there's a big cruising ground. So the closest one to me was the Sea of Cortez in Mexico. So my sort of Unformed plan was basically have a look down there, see if I can find a a well-equipped boat from someone who decided that for whatever reason they had to go back to the states and they had a beautiful boat that they wanted to sell. And then I thought, well, I'll be in the Sea of Cortez for a couple of years, and then I'll have to go through the Panama Canal, and then I'll have to go into the uh, into the Caribbean for a couple of years until I'm confident enough to cross the Atlantic. And I'm adding this all up, France, and I'm thinking, well, it's going to be 10 years before I get my boat to the Mediterranean, and I'm now in my early 50s. And so I couldn't really square that circle, so to speak. I couldn't figure out how I could get where I wanted to be in a reasonable amount of time without spending a fortune. And, of course, the, the idea of you know lining up a load of prospective boats in Europe and then flying over there at great expense, I mean, that's obviously a complete non-starter. So I couldn't really figure out how how to get there but as so often happens in life serendipity kind of intervened and and two things happened i'd like to tell you about that enabled me to get from a to b and i and for people who are sort of dreaming in the same way that i have been for the last three years hopefully they'll get some serendipity too the first thing is is that as you may know i i race as you do know i race every wednesday in the marina marina del rey and right next to the boat that i race on Is a gorgeous boat. Uh, It's a a Thomas Gilmer design, and it's called a Weatherly 32. And for those interested in looking it up, there's actually half a dozen boats that were finished by different companies along this design by Philip Gilmer. Um, And the boat is actually owned by a Porsche mechanic. And every time I get on our race boat, which is a Santana 30, I've been, you know, gazing longingly at this weatherly 32 and thinking to myself, if he ever decides to sell, I'm buying that boat. Well, guess what? He put it for sale on Craigslist. Um, And it was a beautiful boat, but it hadn't crossed and the atlantic it didn't have quite the provenance of the allied seabreeze and the price he wanted was $58,000 and i think the same night i came home and i was noodling around on the 59north website and i looked again at the allied seabreeze which incidentally i'd seen half a dozen times and i saw that the price had come down from 50,000 to 39,000 and i thought to myself well goodness the Allied Seabreeze has so much more going for it. It has all of these uh, modifications and improvements and restoration. It's a proven blue water boat, and it's um, got a lifting keel, and it's got a new diesel, and it's VAT paid, and it's in Sweden, and it's <laughs> cheap to store. And at that moment, it, it, instead of coming up with reasons why I shouldn't buy this boat, I suddenly couldn't think of a single reason why I, sh- why I shouldn't. I mean, it suddenly became a no-brainer to just say this is a fantastic deal this is the boat this boat and me was was supposed to be together and at that point it's like the scales fell, fell from my eyes suddenly i just said okay i'm going to buy this boat and i really haven't had a second thought since and it, you know it sometimes you feel it's a little uncomfortable going from the stage of dreaming to doing because you're outside of your comfort zone but the flip side of that is you have when you start looking at the charts and dreaming about where you're going to go, and, and all the friends that you can invite on your boat, and all the fantastic, fantastic life experiences you can have, when that happens, all of those other day-to-day concerns about well, is it practical? Is it reckless? Is it optimistic? You know, should I start acting my age? All those sort of thoughts, and I know you've probably had those people. T- People telling you the same thing, too, when you consider building your boat
1: and sailing it away,
0: <laughs> Joel,
1: but, Joel, sometimes you just have to say what the heck and go for well,
0: it. Well, exactly. Which is, which is kind of in my – I'm sorry. I know I'm a very long-winded talker because I'm, try, I'm trying to wrestle all these big thoughts together. But that's exactly right. I mean, and I think that you do your, your, your listeners a huge service with with the issue of sometimes you've got to say what the heck you've just got to go ahead and do it and what's the worst thing that can happen you know the worst thing that can happen is you go onto your boat and have a great time and maybe you have to spend a little more money than you think and maybe you have a maybe you have 10 years wonderful experiences and then you move on to something else or you get too old or you sell your boat who knows but um as, as, uh, as that, that quote that you said a couple of times on on your show, the, the uh, I think it was the um, Lawrence of Arabia quote or the T.E. Lawrence quote, you know, the ones who dream in daylight, those are the dangerous ones because they're the ones who make their dreams come true.
1: Well, this is exciting, Neil. I'm so excited for you. You're going to have a great time. And you know what is even better? As I plan on joining you sometime up there.
0: <laughs> oh, well, absolutely. Like I said, you're top of my list. And as as you said, it is exciting. I feel like uh, a door has opened to, um, to a brand new chapter of my life. And I'm absolutely thrilled at the prospect of it. And um, it's funny, you know, the, um, the, uh, the English have a very simple expression, uh, which that you probably I think that the Americans have a version of it, too. We say fortune favors the brave or fortune favors the bold. Um <clears throat> And human nature being what it is, people sometimes dress it up in, in more highfalutin notions. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the the Portuguese writer Paulo Coelho.
1: No, wrote, tell yeah. me about
0: him. Well, he started off as a, um, a lyricist in... Um, it's not Portuguese, he's Brazilian, I beg your pardon, but he speaks and dreams and writes in Portuguese. He started off as a, a lyricist in the, in the Brazilian music scene in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and then he decided that he wanted to be a writer he, after traversing the famous um, the, uh, the Santiago to Compostela walk, the famous 600-mile pilgrim walk, which starts in southern France and ends up in, uh, in Spain. I th- I'm sure you're familiar with that. Right. Um, anyway, he's written a lot of bestsellers, but the, the biggest one is something called The Alchemist. Um, which I think has been translated into 80 countries and has been declared, you know, favorite books by everyone from President Obama to Oprah Winfrey. But the central tenet of his book um, is that when you make up your mind to do something, the universe conspires to come together and find a way to help you achieve it, no matter how bizarre or obscure that dream or difficult that dream seems. Um, Now, I've never been a particularly spiritual person, but I found that that certainly worked in my own life. When I came to America, I knew absolutely no one and I needed a job desperately. And just by happenstance, I bumped into someone I knew in in a Beverly Hills pizza joint who got me a job as a uh, serving pizza. Um, That would never have happened if I hadn't had the courage to make the move to America And I think this is is a similar sort of thing. Um, You know, you keep pushing, you keep thinking, you keep looking for ways to make your dream come true. And if you do that, opportunities will arise. And that is what I would say to your listeners who are in the dreaming stage rather than the doing stage. Just keep pushing, keep reading, keep learning, keep getting yourself into a position that when an opportunity arises, you'll be able to grab it with both Mm -hmm. hands. And if you do... You can be like France and be <laughs> be sailing in glamorous, far-flung locations in the beautiful Mediterranean or points elsewhere.
1: I'm looking at the uh, the, the Google Earth on Sweden. Those are the Ullen Islands. I remember talking to Andy about him. Mean, he talked about the Ullen Islands and and how delightful they were to sail in. And I guess you just pull right up to a rock, tie your boat to a rock, and step off. So,
0: yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, it, it's you know it's pretty deep right up to the rock, but um, you don't have a lot of fetch there. The conditions are usually incredibly benign, um, and as I said, in, in a lot of those places, they have these little saunas. That just the wonders of um, of Swedish socialism, France. I, I hope I hope steam won't come out of your ears when I say that, but they you know they have this wonderfully cooperative system where these um these uh, saunas are left and there's an honor system where you pay i think $2 into a little uh, box and there is well, there's always wood that's there for you and a little axe So you can chop up your wood, put it on the sauna, have a sauna, jump in the Baltic and then get back into your boat with a hot drink or a glass of schnapps. And uh, that that kind of sailing, that kind of cruising just really sounds absolutely wonderful to me. And of course, in those high latitudes, you've got in the summer, you've got daylight from basically four o'clock in the morning till close to midnight. So you can really fit in. Those sailing days can really be long, wonderful days up
1: there. So when do you plan on heading over? What What's your schedule? Have you set specific dates? You're going to be heading over to the boat and look at it. So you have you bought it sight unseen. You've seen photographs of it. You haven't actually seen the boat yet, right?
0: That's correct that's correct and um the funny thing is is that Andy bought it almost sight unseen himself i mean he he saw it in a in, in a dockyard and he bought it when it was still on the hard it never been in the water so this is just one step removed from there but to answer your question Andy as you know has a diffi- as a, a a busy schedule with his offshore sh- sailing passages and his commitments to various other things like the ark um the ark rally and the uh, the sailboat shows he does So he's told me the earliest he can get there is the beginning of June. So what I plan to do is go over there at the same time, the end of May or the beginning of June. We'll spend a few days on the boat together, splashing it, and he's going to teach me the systems, as I said. And then the plan is um, my family are not going to, because of school arrangements, won't be able to come until at least the middle of July. So I'll have six weeks getting to know the boat on my own or... With uh, any of my guests who who would care to join me, hint, hint. Um, (laughs) And then um, I'll probably have a couple of weeks at the end after my family have been there too. So the plan is it's at least, I'm going to have at least eight weeks and maybe 10 weeks. I really, you know, there's no point in going all that way for a couple of weeks. And I really want to become acquainted with the boat and confident and competent in handling her on my own. So that's the plan.
1: That sounds like a great plan. What kind of engine is it?
0: It is a Beta Marine. Okay. Um, I'm not the,
1: familiar with that
0: brand. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's an English manufacturer, small company, but with a pretty big uh, customer base doing marine applications. Um, it's quite a small engine. Um, it's only 16 horsepower, um, which he did – I think Andy did actually mention that in the uh, on the website that some people are going to think that's a little small – because the original configuration was a 25-horsepower um, Grey Sea Scout. And I think they put a Westerbeak in some of the, the later ones too, but they were both 25 horsepower, and this is only 16 horsepower. But Andy's philosophy, which is something that I really am in sympathy with, he believes he's something of a purist. Um, his view is, is that it's an auxiliary power plant and that you should be sailing as much as you possibly can. Um, And I kind of uh, am in sympathy with that. So that's fine. I don't have a problem with it being only 16 horsepower. The main purpose of it is to, you know, get me in and out of the dock if necessary. Um, uh, And the rest of the time I plan to be using the sails. And she's also a yawl. So she has the mizzen mast at the back, which I've never experienced either. So I've been reading up madly on um, the pros and cons of when you put the mizzen sail up and when you don't. So there's going to be sort of an interesting learning curve there, but it really adds to the beauty of the boat. I mean, when the, I've seen some of the photos with the boat with uh, with uh, with all three of the sails up, and she just looks, you know, absolutely beautiful. Um, and then again, one of the other things that I really like about the, the boat's configuration is that Andy, being a minimalist, um, has replaced all of the systems with um, very very low draw electronics. So all the lights are LED. He has an icebox that's a very low draw, and he's got a couple of uh, the latest solar panels sewn into the Dodger. So, in fact, the boat is completely energy independent. I think, last, as long as the sun is shining, he said that when he was there for eight weeks with his wife last year, they sailed on the boat um, for eight weeks around uh, the Swedish archipelagos, and they didn't need to run the engines once to charge up the batteries. And that to me is, is is hugely appealing because the the notion of having um, you know many many complicated systems that are you know very energy thirsty that doesn 't really appeal to me at all. I want to reduce my carbon footprint as much as I can, and this boat will allow me to do that
1: so i 'm looking at google earth and and is it near stockholm then is those lakes just inside of stock or just to, to the uh, west of Stockholm? I think I talked to Andy and I think he showed me where it was at one point in time.
0: The boat is currently on the hard in a place called
1: Vastoras, which is there it a, is. A, okay. Yep, I'm looking at it. So it is it that's west of Stockholm in those and in, in those lakes there to the west of Right. Yep.
0: So it really looks like a, a pretty benign place uh, in which I sort of can get my feet wet with the new boat and get to know her and get to know her peculiarities and, and my own peculiarities as well. So I'll start off there and then I'll just see how adventurous I feel. And that's, um, that's, you know, part of the nice thing about sailing. You can follow your nose, you can stay in one place if you want to, or you can venture further afield and either one works for me, I
1: think. I just zoomed in and I see the boat yard right there next to the water.
0: Yes, I was looking to see if I could see the boat, but I suspect the photo was taken from a while ago but uh yeah it's uh it's it, and it 's a wonderful thing to do i mean it 's a wonderful way to spend an afternoon when you should be when you should be working, just looking around at all the fantastic places you 're going to be sailing at in nine months
1: now I see there 's an airport right at vosstorus is, is that where you 'll is that the international airport or is that just another no, airport
0: there no no the the international airport is called Arlanda. Um, and that's a little bit to the east. And again, it, you know, I, I know I'm probably boring you telling you, you know, how, why this boat was so perfect for me. But I, it's just mentioning the airport just sort of reminds me of another reason that this was so appealing to me. My, my wife's closest friend of the last 20 years is an American lady who um, lives in London with a Swedish husband. And they actually have a big country house in a place called Rimbo, which is about it's about um, equidistant, I would say, from Vasteras to uh, to Stockholm, and so we've already spent several idyllic summers in Sweden. It's a place that we're very comfortable in. My son has told me on no fewer than half a dozen occasions that it's his favourite place in the world. And my son's pretty spoiled. You know, he's been to Tahiti (laughs) and he's been to Bordeaux and he's been to London. And he says that rural Sweden is his favourite place in the world because it's so calm and peaceful and civilised, to use his word. So, again, that's another draw that when we go to Sweden, we can visit family, friends. Um, And, um, as I said, this lady is actually the godmother to my two children. So it really just just ties in beautifully. Um, But, yeah, I would be flying into... um, to Arlanda, and then just, I guess, uh, making my way probably on public transport down to Vastaras to see the boat.
1: You know, you alluded to the story that I actually wanted you to tell, because when you were with me on the boat, you talked about how you came to America and how you ended up staying in America. And and you actually started talking a little bit about that. I don't know if you want to relate that to the listeners or not, but I thought that was a, a really interesting story. And your experience doing that because you're basically an an immigrant to America.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. And I'm, I'm more than happy to share that story. Um, I graduated university at the university of London in 1983 with a degree in Latin And, you know, it was a very ill-advised choice, but I won't go into that. But uh, I was kind of at a loose end. I was working in a wine bar um, and really didn't have any direction or any idea of what I wanted to do. I was only 21 years old. You know, we graduate in three years over there in England. Um, So I was basically just a, a rootless kid. And a friend of mine who I was working with in this bar said he was planning to fly to New York um, get a car cheap and drive across country and would I be interested in joining him and this was just the adventure I'd been looking for, I'd always loved travel as I said I was at a loose end so um, in those days you could fly for about $100 on People's Express from uh, from London Heathrow to New York so that's what we did we bought a car for $300 and we drove across country and we had a, just a fabulous time, sometimes we camped out, sometimes we stayed in cheap motels um, and the idea was that we were going to go and stay with a, a friend of my friend who lived in uh, Santa Monica, right on the coast, just outside of just about 10 miles from downtown L.A. But um, sometimes things don't always go as planned. And when we got to Santa Monica, my friend said to me, well, he said, I'm sorry, but you can't.' The, 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 our host, his name was Joel. He said, I'm sorry, but Joel's had some issues with his girlfriend or something like this, and he's got room for me, but he doesn't have room for you. So... <laughs> I basically was, you know, by then I'd almost run out of money. Um, I was in Santa Monica with, you know, um, uh, nowhere to stay. And I was really thinking, well, this is kind of a bad situation I'm in here and I'm going to have to find some way to get out of it. So I thought, well, the first thing I've got to do is try to find a job. Um, And I thought, well, how am I going to do that? Um, So I thought, well, I'm just going to have to start going into every bar and restaurant. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. And maybe if I can charm them with my English charm and just, uh, you know, I might be able, I might get lucky. That's basically what it was. It was a long shot, but it was worth a try because I didn't really have any, many other options. So I think the second day or the third day I was there, I walked from Santa Monica Beach to Beverly Hills, which is a long way. It's probably, uh, I don't know, eight, seven or eight miles. The sun was absolutely roasting. It was one of those uh, roasting early summer days uh, I felt kind of like a lizard trying to just dart from, from shadowy corner to shadowy corner <laughs> um, you know, so I didn't get sunburned before I went in and asked for a job so really it was a, it was a pretty pitiful situation but I, I got to um, I got to Beverly Hills by the middle of the afternoon and I'd struck out everywhere I'd gone, everyone said not interested, not interested, not interested no work, sorry, sorry, sorry can't help you And uh, I walked down Cannon Drive, which is one of the swankiest streets in Beverly Hills, and I saw this little shopping arcade, this little pedestrian plaza. And at the end of it, I saw a place that said Café Roma. So I walked down to uh, Café Roma, and I was just about to go inside, and I thought, well... Should I improve my pitch, my sales pitch? I sort of flattened my hair, tried to make myself look a little more presentable. And I was just thinking about how I was going to approach this when a waiter came came out with a pizza in each hand and he looked at me and he said, Neil, <laughs> I looked back at him and he was someone who I knew from London who worked and who'd worked until about six weeks before at a hairdresser's three doors down from the bar where I'd been working Um And I knew him to say hello to, but we certainly weren't close friends or anything like that. And I had no idea he was in Los Angeles. And he came up to me and said, it's so amazing to see you. What are you doing? And I said, well, he said, I'm kind of on my beam ends, as the English say. I'm not in a great situation. I kind of need a job. And he said, well, we need a bartender. He said, but to be honest with you, you look terrible. Terrible wasn't the word he used, but in in I don't want I want I know that your podcast is uh, is, uh, is is uh, child friendly, <laughs> so I won't say the word he used, but you can imagine. So he said he said my shift finishes in thirty minutes. Come back to my place, clean yourself up. I'll lend you a suit, and you can come back tomorrow, and I'll introduce you to the owner of the place. So he introduced me to the owner of the place the next day. I got a job as a bartender. Within a week I was making, this was right before the Olympics, so there was a wonderful buzz around the city and there were foreign visitors coming in. And Within a week I was making $300 cash Um, and I think after the third week the owner, who also owned a nightclub just down the road, said, I really like your style with our customers. I like that English accent. He said, I've got a couple more shifts available in a nightclub. My nightclub, would you come and work there? And I said, great, love to. I wanted as much work as I could get. And I think the second night that I was at the nightclub, the manager said to me, well, how are you getting around? Because I think he'd seen me getting off the bus. And I told him I didn't have any transport. And he said, well, I've got a spare car. I'll lend you that until you get on your feet. And so within a month, I had a great job, an exciting job where I got to meet a lot of people. Um, I was making money. I had a car. I found a place to live. And I found that that. Um, this incredible social mobility that the United States of America offered me. I mean, that set, that set in stone my unbelievably favorable opinion of America. America has been wonderful to me. Um, but it's also reinforced that message that I had to be willing to go into every shop from here to Beverly Hills with my cap in my hand for that little piece of good luck to happen to me. You know, I mean, fortune does favor the brave. But I've been rewarded just a thousand times over in terms of my life now that, that I've been able to build here. And so for that, I'm sort of I'm grateful to America, but I'm also grateful to Providence. That I re- Life really does sometimes work that way if you're brave enough to say, what the heck?
1: <laughs> I love that story, Neil. I, and, you know, my experience has been somewhat similar. Whenever I've wanted something really bad, as long as I'm willing to work for it somehow – Things happen that make it make it occur. You know, I mean, it just just works out that way. When I started building my boat, people showed up that could help me do things. Money'd come in just as I needed it. Things things. I mean, I'm like you. I'm not spiritual, but there's some sort of um, I don't know invisible hand that seems to direct direct you to to find what you need. So it's interesting to hear it come from somebody else. What else should I cover with you? Do you have any other stories to tell us? You know, you were a great storyteller on the boat this summer.
0: Thank you. You're very kind. Um, Honestly, I think that that's just about it. I made a big list of things here, and I don't have, and I think I've basically covered everything. Um, I suppose I could also tell you that that it's got a Cape Horn wind vane. (laughs) (laughs) That was actually that was actually uh, measured by Eve Jellinus. You you know Eve Jelanus, right? Do you know who he is? No, I don't. One of the leading gurus of uh, you know, there's probably probably two dozen people out there who've been sailing or cruising for the last thirty years, and the names that you would know, of course, is you know John Kretschmer, Lynn and Larry Pardy, Donald Street, all those kind of people. Um, Well, there's a very interesting fellow by the name of Eve Jellinus who has owned an Allberg 30, I believe, for the last 30 years, and he's had at least two circumnavigations, and he developed his own kind of wind vane called the Cape Horn wind vane, which I'm sure you've heard of, Um, and he actually came to measure... The Cape Horn wind vane for Arcturus when she was at the I guess Annapolis Boat Show a couple of years ago. Um, so you know, and again, I fell in love with uh, with Vanity on on your boat. <laughs> I just thought that was such a wonderful system, and that was yet another reason why I wanted to to buy Arcturus because she's got just not this not only a magnificent wind vane but one that actually is 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 sort of you know made by hand and measured by Eve Jellinus who is such a legend. So I feel that there's. Um, there 's all these legendary figures who have laid hands on Arcturus one way or another, and I just hope and i'm i 'm sure i 'll be okay with it, but I hope that i 'm worthy of the boat. I think most people worry that the boat 's going to let them down in my case i 'm concerned that i 'm going to let the boat down
1: <laughs> so is this is this a servo pendulum type uh, gear then no
0: no it 's not it 's the same kind that you have um, and it has it has two it has the the sailcloth for the light air for the and then it has an aluminum fitting that you fit over in heavy air.
1: Now, do you have some pictures I can put up on the website to show our listeners?
0: Yeah, I'll send them to you as soon as I get off the phone.
1: All right. All right, Neil. Thanks a lot.
0: Well, great talking to you. Keep in touch. we Will do. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions for stories or people I should interview or topics you'd like covered, drop me a note franz at medsailor.com or contact me by using the contact form at the website. Also do me a favor and go into the iTunes directory and give me a five-star rating or whatever rating you think this podcast deserves and tell your friends and family about the podcast if you think it's something that they might be interested in. Thanks for listening. Get out there and go sailing. Joe, you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances.
0: You are so right.
1: You've made me very proud. I was just thinking, where we might be ten years from now, you know? The introduction and exit quotes for this podcast were from the movie Risky Business, released in 1983 and written by Paul Brickman. The dialogue, which was used in order, were played by Curtis Armstrong, who in the movie played the character Miles Dalby, Nicholas Pryor, who in the movie played Joel's father, Mr. Goodson, and Tom Cruise, who was the main character, who played the character of Joel Goodson.